0: Bodybuilding Dietitians podcast. Thank you so much for joining us today for what is now episode 72. And as always, you're joined by your hosts, Tiara and Jack. Now, before we get into today's Q&A episode, we just want to remind you that if you do enjoy these podcasts, please feel free to tell your family and friends about them. Take a screenshot, post it to your Instagram stories, tag Jack, tag myself, tag the Bodybuilding Dietitians. And if you are interested in getting in touch with us regarding our coaching services, please feel free to head over to our website at www.thebodybuildingdietitians.com, which you can also find in the show notes down below. So Jack, you know, episode 72, Q&A, what's the first question?
1: Great. So the first question of today is, does fructose convert to fat more likely than carbs from things like oats?
0: Okay. So this is a good question. And, you know, before we, you know, give you guys the specific answer, I just want to clarify something in terms of carbohydrate terminology. So this question used, you know, the word fructose and the words oats as if oats are their own carbohydrates. So when we're thinking about carbohydrates, they come in different sizes. So there's these things called polysaccharides. Poly means many. Saccharide means sugar. So pretty much polysaccharide is many sugar molecules all attached together. So we've got polysaccharides, right? And you're going to find polysaccharides in a lot of carbohydrate containing foods, including your whole grains, things like beans and lentils, potatoes, right? These are all going to include polysaccharides. Now, following on from polysaccharides, we have disaccharides. Di meaning two, again, saccharide meaning sugar. So two sugar molecules attached together. And there's three different types of disaccharides. There's maltose, which means two glucose molecules attached together. There's lactose, which means one galactose and one glucose molecule attached together. And then there's sucrose which is one fructose and one glucose molecule attached together so those are the three disaccharides and then we have monosaccharides which are just those three sugars i just labeled you know so we've got glucose galactose and fructose those are the three monosaccharides so that's just a little of a uh, biochemistry nutrition lesson for you just on the different types of sugars but jack going back to the question, you know, is fructose, which is a type of monosaccharide, which is found in the disaccharide sucrose, is it more likely to convert to fat compared to something like oats, which would predominantly contain glucose?
1: So... The short answer is yes, but there are a lot of uh, caveats to that and it will depend on the circumstances and it will actually promote fat, but in a different way than you're thinking. So it's more so going to be in the liver than what you're thinking about as a like your your total body fat. And the reason why this is, is because the liver is the only organ that metabolizes fructose compared to glucose, which pretty much every cell in the body can metabolize glucose. So... Basically what happens is that the liver metabolizes fructose in a different way to glucose. And the eventual end product is still glucose when fructose is metabolized. However, some of the substrate of fructose is actually used as part of de novo lipogenesis. And de novo, you've probably heard us mention de novo lipogenesis before, Basically, it's the production of fatty acids from non-fat sources. So it could be carbohydrates or amino acids. And yeah, that's, put it, to put it simply, that's kind of the gist of it. Um, fructose is metabolized in a different way to glucose. There's also no rate-limiting step, so it can't really be slowed down at all in the liver. Tara will touch on a few caveats about it, but essentially it produces something called non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, also known as NAFLD which is getting increasingly common uh, throughout the world as people are consuming more fructose and becoming more overweight, and not really something that we have to worry about as much in the healthy exercising population who watch their diets. But it is very similar to something called alcoholic fatty liver disease, which is uh, which occurs when you basically consume excessive amounts of alcohol. So yeah, I'll let Tiara go on.
0: Yeah, so pretty much there are a few caveats. you know, And we really don't want people to fear fructose necessarily we don't want people to fear their fruits and their vegetables right just because they have fructose in them because they have done you know some studies on this to see you know what is actually a detrimental amount of fructose to actually consume you know to have negative health connotations and they've pretty much like this the main study that i know of is where they had participants consuming 150 grams of fructose per day, right? But some of these participants were in an energy deficit, some were at energy maintenance, and some were in an energy surplus. Fructose only had negative health connotations when it was consumed over a chronic time period if someone was in an energy surplus and they also had a fairly sedentary lifestyle. So pretty much what we're saying is that, you know, consume fruit to your heart's desires if you are in a in a dieting phase you know or even if you're at an at energy balance right but even then you know if you are in a slight energy surplus 150 grams of fructose is a lot of fruit right especially considering like i said fructose is only one of the monosaccharides right and it's attached to a glucose molecule to make a disaccharide so let's say that you had a piece of fruit right and it was 20 grams of carbohydrates in total remember only half of that is actually going to be fructose the other half is going to be glucose so let's say that you had a really really large apple right and it was 20 grams of carbs that's only around 10 grams of fructose and these participants were consuming 150 grams of fructose per day so that's a lot of fruit you know that would be a lot of fruit uh, but the other things are you know is that we actually have a you know a, only a certain amount of fructose transporters in the small intestine so fructose actually goes through a transporter called GLUT 5 in order to be absorbed into the bloodstream but The literature also says that, you know, this is a rate limiting step and that we can actually only absorb around 30 grams of fructose every single hour. So some people even have fructose malabsorption. If you were to consume a lot of fructose at once, this is why endurance runners, you know, people who need to be consuming intra-workout carbohydrates, right? They always consume glucose and fructose in a two to one ratio. So they consume around 60 grams of glucose and 30 grams of fructose per hour in order for all of that to be absorbed so that's another thing to keep in mind but at the same
1: time though like the reality is that this is an issue Mm -hmm. uh, especially in um developed nations so yeah like to an extent we can dumb it not dumb it down sorry um kind of play it, make it sound like it's really safe, but mm-hmm. people still are getting NAFLD, Yeah. And but it's I just think, not... I
0: think it's a part... It's, it's not part from It's the puzzle. Yeah. <laughs> it's not
1: from consuming too much fruit. It's consuming things very high in uh, high fructose corn syrup and other high fructose mm-hmm. foods.
0: That's another thing though, you know, about high fructose corn syrup, which is really interesting. They really kind of uh, jab themselves in the foot with naming high fructose corn syrup a high fructose corn syrup, because, you know, normal sucrose is 50% glucose, 50% fructose, but high fructose corn syrup is actually only 56% fructose and around 44% glucose. They couldn't call
1: it higher fructose corn syrup. uh,
0: Slightly higher (laughs) fructose corn syrup. (laughs) But yeah, uh, I think it's, I think it's a piece of the puzzle. You know, I think People who are consuming very high processed diets filled with, you know, a lot of refined sugars, you know, which with that, they'll get a lot of fructose, but they're also living very sedentary lifestyles. You know, they might smoke, they might drink a lot of alcohol, they might have poor sleep, you know, they might just have that lifestyle cluster effect. So I wouldn't necessarily say it's, it's, it's never just one thing, guys, you know, it's always a combination of different lifestyle factors. but. I guess
1: what would be to play devil's advocate, what would be interesting to see is if someone, such as a bodybuilder who was intentionally gaining weight and therefore body fat, Mm -hmm. like let's say they might even gain twenty kilos across two to three years, Mm -hmm. um, without, yeah, without mini cut, like even someone who does a like a quote unquote like a um, what's it, what's a bad bulking phase called again? Oh, a dirty bulk. Dirty bulk. Yeah, Yeah. that's it. (laughs) So uh, if they if they dirty bulk and then they can, they gain 20 kilos mm-hmm. and they consume, um, lots of processed foods, then they probably are going to increase their risk of naFLD even though they are training regularly and yeah, exercising. That's
0: true. That's true. So if they were consuming, you know, a lot of pop tarts, a lot of ice cream, but they weren't necessarily consuming a lot of fruits and vegetables. Maybe they're consuming to get a lot of their carbs in, a lot of things like apple juice, orange juice, uh, it would be interesting, you yeah. know, and with more bodybuilding literature coming out, that's probably going to be a case study. <laughs> yeah. be pretty cool. But and yeah. yeah, like it
1: goes to strong like even rugby plays potentially as yeah, well. So
0: exactly. So it's interesting, but I think for you, you know, keep eating your fruits, keep eating your vegetables, keep eating your oats too. There's not too much to worry about. I think
1: in Australia as well, it's more the U S in Australia. They, they limit the use of, um, high fructose corn syrup anyway. Mm-hmm. So Yeah.
0: All good. Sweet. All it's right. It's all good. Wait, let's
1: move on. <laughs> it's
0: going to be okay <laughs> for most of us. All right. So we'll move on to another topic. So this next question says calculating and adjusting maintenance calories during a contest preparation. How do you do it?
1: So some of you might be wondering why it's important to have your maintenance calories during a compra. And Basically, it's useful for if you use high days, which we do. So Or
0: diet breaks. Or
1: diet breaks, yes. Yeah. So we usually do uh, probably, depending on the individual, we have about three high days a week, anywhere from one to three. And basically, this allows them to essentially perform better in the gym by consuming more carbohydrates on those harder training sessions. And potentially, we don't really know for certain, but we hope that it might over the long run, help with some metabolic adaptations and even allow them to consume more food throughout the entire week. And due to the aggressive low days, uh, potentially, um, lose more weight. So, Mm -hmm. but basically I think it's important to recognize that, um, to try not to overanalyze calculating maintenance too much because you can always refine it. And what, what we do is we actually just kind of gather what the maintenance was at the start of prep and because you're actually doing more expenditure by the time you need the maintenance calories it'll probably actually be around the same Mm -hmm. and we don't need to get it to the exact calorie either so we'll put that in place and then if you lose weight if you lose a lot of weight then you can say okay um, we've been this isn't your maintenance we'll add some more calories if you gain weight then we can say okay we'll reduce calories slightly Mm -hmm. and What another method that you can do as well is um, if you're losing about half a kilo a week, you know, we can approximate that you're in a 500 calorie deficit each day. So then you can kind of do the math from there as well.
0: Yeah, exactly. So if you were like, if energy output was pretty much very consistent, you know, every single day of the week through steps, through training, you're getting the same amount of sleep, all of this thing, right? You're consuming the same food sources for, uh, the thermic effect of food. Then yeah, you could add on maybe an extra 500 calories and just see how your body responds. We would recommend just adding those from carbohydrates. So 500 calories equates to 125 grams of carbs, you know, but really it is about finding out what works best for you, because everyone is going to respond very, very differently. So it is it is going to be a bit of trial and error, you know, and there's never going to be like a, a very perfect equation, you know, to say this is the exact amount of energy that you need down to the exact calorie. Because again, guys, remember, even slightly our energy expenditure differs every single day. You know, you never know exactly down to the calorie how much you are actually expending.
1: Mm. Yeah. So the short answer would be take your maintenance from the start of prep. That's what I did and my coach did for my last prep and it worked really well.
0: Yeah. I did the exact same, you yeah. know, for, for over for around 20 weeks mm. of my Because
1: prep. yeah, the, the thing that's changing is your, um, metabolic mm-hmm. adaptation um adaptive thermogenesis basically and that's it, that's not going to be to the extent if you're doing things fairly well it's not going to be to the extent where it's going to be hundreds of calories different mm-hmm. it might be 10 percent different so if you're consuming 500 calories maintenance in your off season 10 of that is about 450 mm-hmm. so yeah and these are all very guesstimate so that the key is don't get paralysis by analysis and just um try and yeah take it easy and Yeah. To an extent.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. But it also reinforces, you know, just why it's so important to track your data, you know, and really, really track these numbers. So if you can clarify, you know, uh, what your maintenance calories are during a diet break, right. Then you can use those same macros for your refeed days too, or vice versa.
1: Cool. So we'll move on to the next one. Sweet. So this one says, Best advice if you feel really sore under glutes for days post training them, despite not using heavy weights.
0: Interesting question, you know, so I guess the first thing that pops out to me is that you don't necessarily need to lift heavy weights in order to feel sore after exercise, you know, feeling sore after exercise is more correlated with uh, how hard you are really pushing yourself and your proximity to failure during your sets during that training session. And it can, you know, obviously be a result of just introducing a novel stimulus too. So if you have- That's why if
1: you go to the park and throw a frisbee or throw a ball, the next day you might wake up with a sore shoulder
0: <laughs> exactly so that's the thing right so like jack will bench or he'll shoulder press or tricep push down or whatever and his triceps are pretty much fine the next day but we'll go out and play fetch with the dogs and he's like man i'm really feeling this on my tricep and i'm like dude we're just playing fetch with a tennis ball
1: <laughs> yeah don't underestimate fetch especially with um roller but uh <laughs> so yeah in all seriousness though if you are getting if you want to call it those symptoms of muscle soreness, then it's more of an indicator that you're just doing probably an excessive amount of volume and you're not recovering adequately from that volume. The other alternative is that it's just a, uh, again, without knowing more about your training program, it might be just a new exercise and it's taking you longer to recover from that. So Mm -hmm. if, if it's the latter, then i'll just keep repeating it and seeing how house if you still get that sore if it's the former then i would basically lower your weekly volume to probably the lower end of the spectrum mm-hmm. like 10 to 15 sets per week and go from there and the same can be applied to any muscle group if you're getting excessively sore and not recovering
0: yeah exactly you know and also just a few other things just make sure that your recovery is in check so like for example that you are staying well nourished you know before and after your training sessions making sure that you're getting protein in before and after your training sessions across the day making sure that you're sleeping well making sure you know that you're doing some light mobility work and some stretching just those little things like that to keep in mind too but it is probably more likely that uh you probably might just be doing a little bit too much work that you just can't recover from it or perhaps you just put lunges into your program and you're feeling them so mm. cool. <laughs> i've been there
1: <laughs> so this next question says thoughts on metabolic flexibility the capacity to switch between fuel sources
0: This is a good question, you know, and when people ask questions like this, it, it always makes me think that, man, the body is really smart, you know, and pretty much if you are demanding work from the body, it's going to find a way to use an energy source to produce that work, right? So pretty much this question is asking, you know, Uh, can you use either carbohydrates or fatty acids, or, you know, even amino acids in order to fuel cellular work? And can the body swap between, you know, these different metabolic, uh, processes and pathways? And the answer is yes, yes, it can. But of course there are caveats to that, especially when it comes to exercise performance and, uh, how well you are looking to perform during your exercise session
1: yeah so as tiara said it's going to depend on basically how well you want to perform and there are three different energy systems the first one being creatine phosphate uh, which lasts for about 15 seconds of the first 15 seconds of exercise and that's actually the reason why we supplement with creatine is because it helps um, if you want to use the terminology fill up that um, energy storage so we can replenish it faster and recover more quickly during exercise Mm -hmm. for that energy system uh, so the next one is anaerobic energy system, and that's going to be up to about two minutes of exercise. And basically what anaerobic means is that it, it, it's in the presence of no oxygen. So it doesn't have any oxygen. So we need to use carbohydrates as our main fuel source for this. And yeah, so basically, in other words, the intensity will depict which energy system we're going to use. Um, so if you train at a higher intensity, you're more likely to use the creatine phosphate and anaerobic energy systems. And the third and final energy system is the oxidative energy system, which is used approximately mainly two minutes and onwards of exercise. And that's in the presence of oxygen. And that's the predominantly uses the fatty acids for fuel source.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. But again, with saying this, it's not just like one or the other guys, these systems are always operating at the same time. Just one will predominate over the other. So let's say that even though you are predominantly using your anaerobic energy system and you're predominantly using, you know, uh, glucose as a main fuel source, right? Uh, there's still other metabolic pathways in the body going on that are still using to some degree, right? The oxidative system. But the main thing is with this is that, you know, carbohydrates are the main fuel source for the anaerobic energy system. So when we aren't in the presence of oxygen, our, our cells are, you know, performing at a rate that they just can't go through that beta oxidation, similar to fatty acids. We need to use glucose uh, without the presence of oxygen, and that needs to be broken down into pyruvate, you know, that, then that's converted to lactate, then that goes back to the liver to be produced into pyruvate again, and then comes back to glucose. So it's like this whole system, right?
1: Yeah, so basically to sum it up, the, the, the method in which you fuel yourself is going to be important to how you perform and which energy system you use as well. So if you're undertaking resistance training, which is mainly anaerobic, then utilizing carbohydrate as a fuel source is going to be more effective and therefore undertaking something like the keto diet may not be as optimal
0: Mm -hmm. yeah and when we're consuming carbohydrates guys as well it's actually more efficient for the body to produce atp from glucose compared to producing ATP from fatty acids. So, you know, there's not as high of a demand on the body to get energy from those fuel sources. So that's generally why, uh, You know, sports nutritionists do advocate for higher carbohydrate diets with athletes, whether they are, you know, resistance trained athletes or even race walkers, you know, like Louise Burke. She's done a plenty of different studies looking at race walkers and whether or not they are on higher carbohydrate diets or following more of a high fat ketogenic diet, right? And the athletes who follow the higher carbohydrate diets they usually outperform those who are on a higher fat ketogenic diet. Generally, ketogenic diets are probably only applicable for like ultra endurance athletes people who are doing like just copious amounts of work for a very extended period of time so like 150 kilometers plus of running up a mountain kind of thing that's where utilizing ketones as fuel might be beneficial uh because in that case you would be running out of glycogen stores so that's the thing but again remember these these uh Uh, metabolic pathways are always going, you know, and it really just depends on your exercise intensity. So, if you're going for something like a walk, right, you're predominantly going to be using the oxidative energy system, right? So, you're predominantly going to be using fatty acids as a fuel source when you're out walking your dog, but when you're in the gym, you know, and you're doing resistance training, that's when you're predominantly going to be using your anaerobic system and using glycogen as a fuel source because. The body's just smart in that way. So hopefully that answers the question, but uh obviously if you wanted a much more detailed answer you'd need to read up on some sort of biochemistry textbook.
1: So this next question says, Could you please explain why some nutritionists only count HBV animal protein and not other types? How do the other protein types react slash is it important?
0: Hmm. So what do you think about this one?
1: So I can understand why some people um, only count hbv and again it's going to d- depend on what your goals are so for example counting hbv is important because that is the most effective types of protein to stimulate muscle protein synthesis and for recovery muscle gain protein synthesis etc um, hbv protein essentially contains all the essential amino acids and an effective amount of leucine as well so that's probably why people only count HPV, um, for that reason. But personally, we think it's important to accommodate for all other types of protein as well, because it's still, you still need to think about energy balance as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Exactly. So whether or not you're getting your protein from a corn cob or you're getting it from a chicken breast, you know, per gram protein's still going to have four calories. So I certainly wouldn't advocate for just counting HBV protein and disregarding the rest, right? I would certainly, like, I would try to put an emphasis on, okay, let's ensure that if you are an omnivore, so you're consuming plants and animal products, that you are getting around 25 to 35 grams of an HBV protein source in each meal, you know, spread across maybe four to six meals across the day, right? And then you're also going to account for other protein on top of that so let's say that you had a sandwich right with some chicken in it and then you also had some whole bread both the bread and the chicken are both going to have protein in them but just make sure that you're getting you know 25 to 30 grams from the chicken and then you're probably going to get around like maybe 10 grams from the bread mm. or something like that
1: yeah i think it's also important to recognize that like most sports nutritionists don't work with bodybuilders and like mm-hmm. it makes a lot more sense for someone like a rugby player or a runner to only because like the reality is that most athletes don't track their macros mm-hmm. and so that it makes a lot more sense for nutritionists to say okay try and have 25 to 30 grams of hpv three to five times a day other than saying track your macros and my fitness pal or given a meal plan so in that side of things i think it makes a lot more sense but mm-hmm. for people who are more focused on body composition then it makes more sense to track the the whole thing energy and macros
0: absolutely you know and if you're working with an athlete who follows a plant-based diet you know or a vegan diet and they're not consuming hbv protein sources obviously you need to account for uh everything else because you still got to account for protein. And in that case, that's where it's going to be, you know, very important to ensure that they are combining different plant sources in order to make complete proteins, you know, within each meal and across the day, ensuring they're getting enough of the essential amino acids from a variety of different plant-based foods. So yeah, hopefully that answers the question. Mm
1: -hmm. (laughs) Cool. So we'll move on to the next one. And this one says, out of an ectomorph, endomorph and mesomorph, which is the hardest to design a prep plan for?
0: Wow, what an interesting question.
1: Yeah, so I, I remember when I first started getting into nutrition and like used to go on go on a website, I think it was Muscle Coach or um, a lot of other websites are similar and you would say, okay, am I endo, meso, or ectomorph? You'd click on that one and then it would give you the diet for <laughs> your, your body type and-
0: The diet and the training plan. <laughs>
1: So yeah, we laugh because ultimately like it's, it's kind of a poor representation of um, it's very, very, very generalized. And sure, there definitely are people who genetically are predisposed to find it more difficult to gain weight or less difficult. And then there's going to be the people in the middle who kind of naturally potentially gain muscle a bit easier. So there definitely are those three types, but it's going to be a bit more varied than than just saying ecto, meso, and endo.
0: Yeah, exactly. You can't categorize the human race into just three different categories. You know, just put each person in a box and just be like, this is the way you should eat and this is the way you should train because this is how you look. (laughs) Mm.
1: So in saying that though, like one of the things we look at most of all when we start a prep is among a lot of other things, is your EA, which is energy availability. And someone who is an ectomorph and finds it harder to gain weight would have be consuming a large amount of food in relation to their body weight, which would mean they have a much higher EA potentially than someone of an e- endomorph. So to, to actually kind of answer that question, I, w- I think it would be more favorable to be a ectomorph um, mm-hmm. so in when, a contest preparation.
0: And with this, so, you know, ectomorph is generally the person who is quite tall quite slim you know when they look at weights they don't just put on size kind of thing and then a mesomorph is that dude who's like in the middle who can kind of just like respond either way and then an ectomorph is apparently the big person, right? Who just like, you know, they don't necessarily need, a, do they need a lot of food? They're just a big guy or they're just a big human <laughs> being, right? Like, but that's the thing as at the same time, this, this question kind of makes me laugh or just this idea of thinking, because the whole thing about bodybuilding and physique sport is that you are manipulating your body composition you are trying to change your body composition so even if you start out as an ectomorph you know you can manipulate your body to look more like a mesomorph Mm. or an endomorph right that's that's the goal right (laughs)
1: yes (laughs) but yeah basically what we're trying to say is that there is going to be some natural variation between people in terms Mm. of like your energy availability how much muscle you can put on and like Tiara's is right in saying people who like, for example, if you have overweight parents, then you're going to be more susceptible to, to weight gain potentially. Mm-hmm. Um, so that doesn't mean you can't make your EA better as, as your life goes on. Um, but it means you potentially in a worse situation. Yeah. But we're, we're, what we're trying to say is that my final answer is kind of like, if you have an ectomorph who is more muscular enough to get on stage and who has accumulated the uh, the enough lean tissue, then I think that they're going to be the best um, in a contest prep because they'll have the most energy availability.
0: Yeah, but from all the clients I've worked with, you know, I can't necessarily just I can't certainly just can't look at someone and pinpoint mm-hmm. like oh yeah, you know, their EA is gonna be like really high, you know, Um, because I've worked with people who are very tall, quite slim, who they can't necessarily eat a copious amount of energy. But I've also, you know, worked with people who are very short and quite slim and they can eat a copious amount of calories. So, or just like people who, you know, are are shorter but quite bigger and they can eat a lot or they can't eat a lot. So, I mean, everyone's different. Everyone is different. You gotta know your athlete, you gotta know yourself. You certainly can't, you know, categorize yourself into one of these boxes and just accept that's the way how things are. Yeah. And that's that's another thing. Maybe that's a red herring as well. If you're working with a coach and they're like, oh, I know your kind of body. You know, you're an ectomorph. (laughs) I've got just the plan for you. You should be like, ooh, (laughs) do I really want to work with this person?
1: (laughs) Yeah, and EA isn't the only um, criteria for prep as well. Like, just mm-hmm. because you can eat a lot of food in prep doesn't just mean it's gonna go well because like the reality is if you get lean enough it's going to be shit for everyone regardless yeah. of you could be eating like 5000 calories a day in prep and you would still feel like crap because yeah. it's the it's more so the body fat and the hormones yeah. that It's it all so, relative yeah. and
0: even if you start off your prep with a really high EA you know like the body freaking adapts dude and I've talked about this before too you know at the beginning of my prep I was eating around 400 grams of carbs you know at the end of my prep I got down to 150 grams of carbs so it doesn't always work out in a linear fashion or you can't always maintain a super duper high ea but the main thing is is that when you're in a prep you know you have to think about the ultimate goal which is getting stage ready and sometimes you just got to do what you got to do and more often than not that usually requires you to drop uh calories quite low and energy expenditure is going to be quite high so that's another thing to just uh take into account and consider as well cool. yes <laughs> All right. So this next question says, how much caffeine or other stimulants do you consume? So Jack, just how many Red Bulls, Mother's (laughs) Envy's do you have on a daily basis?
1: (laughs) So I usually have a uh, instant coffee in the morning and then some pre-workout prior to training. So it's probably about three to 400 milligrams per day, Mm -hmm. and which isn't a lot at all for my body weight. So Mm -hmm. like considering that the, the dosage is like three to six milligrams per kilo body weight. I'm about 90 kilos, a bit, bit heavier, but so that could be anywhere from 270 to uh, nine times six.
0: 54. Is to 540. So, 540. <laughs> 540. <laughs>
1: so yeah, it's about in the middle there. And yeah, I've, I've never been someone who consumes a lot of stimulants. Like um, I, I would say like I... The more I consume, it just seems to raise my heart rate. Like say if I have, interestingly, if I have coffee prior to training, it makes me feel a lot more, my heart rate increases a lot more Mm -hmm. uh, compared to having pre-workout, which is why I favor pre-workout now. Mm -hmm. And I think definitely in prep, I'll be consuming more caffeine because like it'll make me feel more awake. But at the moment it doesn't, it lifts me up a certain amount, but doesn't do too much.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting because if you're having the pre-workout, for vpa and it's around like 240 milligrams of caffeine i'm pretty sure around that which is more
1: than i'd consume through coffee yeah
0: way more but it's also if you're 92 kilograms now 240 milligrams isn't even reaching that three Mm. milligrams per kilo so i would actually be really interested to see if you did notice a performance increase like upping that to maybe five or six milligrams per kilogram like maybe even doubling it because I actually consume way more caffeine than Jack, which is pretty interesting. I think in my coffee in the morning, I usually have like three heap teaspoons. So that's probably, mm. is that like around maybe 150 to 200 yeah. milligrams? And unlike then,
1: you though, I don't need any performance boost to yeah. eat my breakfast. So.
0: <laughs> what do you mean? Performance <laughs> boost to eat my breakfast. I just love coffee. <laughs>
1: but why not just have one teaspoon then?
0: Because I want like a more flavor of my coffee and, Yes. I don't it's just a strong so why not coffee, just get, It's um, less watered down.
1: Why not do like one of the plunger coffees? That would taste way better.
0: That's true. We could go to Kmart and buy a plunger. We used to have one of those before we broke it. <laughs> but I actually I consume a lot of caffeine before my workout because I generally have the pre-workout, which is like yeah, 240 milligrams. And then I usually have two pre pump capsules from VPA as well. So each capsule has 100 milligrams of caffeine in it too. So if I'm having like 400 and let's say around 450 milligrams of caffeine before a workout, I weigh 62 kilograms. What? All right, what's that? What's 45 divided by six? Seven? So holy shit, I'm consuming around over seven milligrams per kilo before my workout. Dude, no wonder I'm training so well. <gasps> Holy crap. That's, I didn't even, wow, that's a lot. But I feel that like I must be really accustomed to that because I don't like get a negative fall. I don't even get like heart palpitations and I'm actually sleeping really well at night. So mm. maybe like I've really upped my ability to metabolize caffeine yeah shiz all right well yeah we yeah but we certainly aren't on the level where people you know are drinking monsters and everything all day every day so mm. yeah yeah
1: when, when we're not in that spot where to be honest i usually have coffee in the morning due to other reasons as opposed to the <laughs> energy factor um as, other reasons <laughs> we
0: one other reason
1: <laughs> a, uh so yeah i'm not i'm definitely not dependent on coffee for energy or anything like
0: mm-hmm. so. Yeah, it's good, but I think that's the only caffeine is the only stimulant that we take. We don't take any other, any other
1: like no speed, cocaine, heroin.
0: (laughs) No, we're not into that. (laughs) Okay, so last question of the day. This one says, "Do you think the sport of natural bodybuilding is inherently unhealthy?"
1: I think it definitely can be for some people, and we have to consider the mental and. Physical side of things as well. So, people have undoubtedly developed eating disorders from body uh, body dysmorphia, and then there's the issue of body dysmorphia itself as well. So, both of those are probably fairly common in the bodybuilding scene, um, in males and females. So, like straight off, that's that's definitely one side of why it could be unhealthy. And then we have to consider the the physical side of things, which. It's probably less common because it's natural and you're not pushing your body to the same sort of limits but like if you are gaining 20-30 kilos from your set point um, having to consume a lot of extra food in order to do that then um, I'm kind of just speculating here but I don't I don't think it's as healthy as if you were to exercise regularly like go for a run or do, do weights recreationally and stay a, um, like a BMI of um, a healthier BMI as opposed to... Like, for example, my BMI right now is almost obese. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: You're like right in the middle, apparently, of overweight and obese.
1: Yeah. No, I'm, no, I'm more so almost obese now.
0: Really? What's it now?
1: I don't know, but I'll have to, I'll have to calculate <sighs> it then.
0: Uh, hold on, we're, we're going to calculate this really quickly. Okay, we're back. That was the <laughs> fastest calculation in history. <laughs> Jack, what was it?
1: So it was 28.8 and obese is 30.
0: Damn. Yeah. So pretty much healthy BMIs, the rank is between like 18.5 to 24.9. That's the range you want to be. And BMI is pretty much just your weight in kilograms divided by your height squared. So, yeah, healthy between 18.5 to 24.9. And then overweight is anywhere between 25 to 29.9. And then obese is 30 plus. And there's even different classes of obesity. Mm. Yeah, so apparently Jack's almost obese, but that also, you know, that does debunk why BMI isn't necessarily... Oh yeah, BMI is not a great measure, but... It's pretty outdated, you know.
1: (laughs) But yeah, at the same time, like, and I'm sure there'll be more research coming out, but it just kind of makes sense to me that we're getting, we're undulating our body weights quite Mm a lot. I would definitely, this female is probably definitely not in the same boat as males, Mm -hmm. but yeah, like depends yeah just depends who you are and you it depends on your genetic predisposition as well so so someone who is hypertensive so high blood pressure potentially gaining weight and eating more amounts of food is going to just make that worse so you kind of have to factor in yeah like your genetics uh, predisposition like family history of even things like heart disease or kidney disease. Mm So,
0: and it's interesting because you went straight because obviously guys, bodybuilding is an extreme. It's a very, very unique sport and you have to do very specific things to achieve very specific outcomes. But those specific outcomes, you're only supposed to maintain those for a very acute period of time. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, but the thing it's interesting to me, cause you went straight to the extreme of, you know, in your improvement season, being at your peak body weight, but rather than people who are in the depths of comp prep and they potentially could be at the lowest weight that they've ever been during their adult life, you know? So that's the other end of the extreme too. And I would actually be really interested to see if they could, you know, compare, perhaps it could be the same cohort, but they were at different time periods. Right. But, basically their health markers when they were in the depths of comp prep compared to someone who was, you know, in the very peak of their off season, you know, different health parameters, or perhaps what, what about this, Jack? Do you think that people who are in the very depths of comp prep, so perhaps, you know, males who have low testosterone levels, females who might have temporarily lost their menstrual cycle, do you think which one is healthier to be obese, you know, and live a sedentary lifestyle, or, you know, be in the depths of comp prep and perhaps, you know, have some of these uh, hormonal regulations downregulated. Like, that I would, would
1: say being obese is worse.
0: Yeah, but both Not an the... obese
1: bodybuilder, an obese...
0: An obese person, yeah. Ah, yeah. oh, that's an interesting question, you know? But at the same time... But I, w-
1: I would fairly confidently say that someone who is normal, they eat well, they exercise regularly, uh, they have no, like um, family history of any diseases, I would say that they're healthier in quotation marks than someone who eats in excess in order to gain weight. Mm Uh, so a bodybuilder.
0: Yeah, I would, I would agree. I would agree with that too. You know, perhaps not the healthiest person walking around on the planet, but, uh, perhaps healthier if you were making that comparison, but yeah,
1: doesn't mean you can't be healthy though, but we're kind of going to extremes here in order to answer that question.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I'd say, you know, the main thing is, is just make sure that if you are involved in this sport, get yourself a very good evidence-based coach from the get-go who you can just start learning from, who, you know, takes you down this journey and implements, you know, strategies in the healthiest way possible so that your health can be treated as the top priority. And hopefully you won't run into a lot of these, you know, and like potential issues of you know severe body dysmorphia you know and extreme weight loss or extreme weight gain or you know just like just crazy things happening to to your uh, endocrine system all of these different things so get yourself a really really good coach and help them take care of you and take care of yourself too
1: yeah at least we know that our bone min- mineral density will be Favorable when we're older.
0: Exactly. You know, we're doing all that resistance, all that compound exercise, and damn, we do eat a hell of a lot of yogurt. <laughs> Great. All right, guys. So that was the last question for today, but the final thing we always finish on is one thing that we learned this week. So Jack, what did you learn this week?
1: Yeah, so I learned a bit about twice a day training from one of the Revive Stronger podcasts. And it wasn't anything groundbreaking, but it was just a great summary of twice-a-day training and um, why you might consider it, or probably the bigger highlight was why you should not consider it. And basically like a summarization of um, something that I found quite interesting was just about the manipulation of volume for twice-a-day training and how many people when they start it, they think, okay, I'm training twice a day, I can do like two full sessions. But in reality, you're just gonna really... Uh, accumulate excessive amounts of fatigue if you do that, and it's more about um, doing the same amount of volume split into two sessions, so that you can attack those exercises with a greater intensity.
0: Mm-hmm. So it's just more about better quality volume.
1: That's correct. Yes.
0: Yes. <laughs> cool. Would it, is this something that you'd ever consider doing? Uh,
1: maybe. To be honest, I'm even considering it doing it in prep because, like, you get to that in a prep, like more so the end of prep though, because like you get to that point where you're halfway through the session and you're kind of really struggling and mm-hmm. struggle street so yeah I might do so for a leg session I might do like squats and then staggered RDLs and then maybe my single leg leg press and then do, finish the rest later but yeah and for us the gym is very close by or we could even do it at home so
0: yeah exactly well we, yeah we got our own little home gym here now yeah that's the main thing just getting in better quality volume because sometimes when you get to the end of a session you know you've done your main compounds but then you have like more of your accessory work so things like leg extension leg curl calf raises hip abductions or maybe you've got some arms and some delt work right like you're just so fatigued from like the three or four compound exercises prior to that that you know you're just you're not feeling as fresh and just can't give it your all but if you had a few hours break man you could just really attack those exercises and probably get much better quality volume maybe pump out a few more reps you know potentially maybe lift a little bit of a heavier weight just yeah just have a better workout overall and over time that would probably accumulate to much better gains and training performance Mm. yeah something to consider but it's something you know you it's a big commitment a lot of people struggle to go to the gym you know just once a day let alone twice a day so you certainly do have to be in a very you know specific situation
1: Mm. You'd yeah you'd have to go from five days a week to six days a week to to yeah yeah okay and a good point that uh, Mike made is that like I think or Jared I can't remember but. You can't like say, okay, yeah, I'm going to do twice a day training. And then you end up um, sacrificing sleep in order to get that second session. In mm-hmm. Because then it defeats the purpose of it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So <laughs> specific situation. I think in the situation where certainly right now, you know, with the gym in our house, we could certainly split mm. up our sessions if we yeah. wanted to. Well, we
1: even tried to for a little bit, but yeah. it just wasn't yeah. that fun. Yeah, us. exactly.
0: And we don't, yeah, because you just... I don't know. And that's the thing as well. Like if you're training twice a day, like getting in that mentality, some like, you know, you really got to get into it. You got to get yourself psyched up. You got to get some music. You, we have our stimulants. We've got our, you know, a bit of caffeine, right? If you're training twice a day, do you have caffeine twice a day? You know, yeah. like, and I don't know. It it's a whole different thing, you know. So it's certainly something to consider and very seriously. that she has to go through. Yes, all oh, my preaching rituals. Yes, <laughs> um, yeah. So interesting. Yeah, that was a really what did good you podcast. Uh <laughs> oh, what I learned. So. I was reading this mass article written by Eric Helms. So he was talking about, you know, macronutrient distribution before sleep and whether or not there's any sort of correlation between the types of macronutrients that you consume before sleep and whether or not they influence your sleep quality. And, you know, spoiler alert, they pretty much- Wait, wait, I
1: block my ears?
0: No, (laughs) I've already told you this dude. (laughs) It's already been spoiled for you, but pretty much they found a correlation between higher protein diets and better quality sleep, right? But something interesting that he was talking about in his interpretation and discussion section, and he actually made this really interesting point that BCAA consumption before bed might actually negatively influence sleep. And The reason for that is that BCAAs, so we have valine, leucine, and isoleucine, right? And these BCAAs, they are actually part of the neural amino acids. So neural amino acids are valine, tyrosine, isoleucine, leucine, and phenylalanine. And the thing is that all of these neural amino acids, they will actually compete with the amino acid tryptophan for uptake in the brain. And... Many of you, you might know, or you might not know, but tryptophan, the amino acid, is actually a precursor for our sleep hormone, melatonin, right? We need tryptophan for melatonin in order to sleep. But let's say that you were consuming BCAAs, right? A very high amount, and they go into your bloodstream, right? They are actually going to interfere at the blood-brain barrier for uptake with tryptophan. So very high amounts of BCAAs could potentially interfere with your sleep quality. So I thought that was really, really interesting. So just if you needed another reason for why BCAs certainly aren't necessary, right? Uh, They don't further enhance muscle growth or recovery at all. And now there's actually, you know, some indication that they could potentially interfere with your sleep, which we know is one of the most important things for ensuring that you do grow muscle and that you do recover. So yeah i thought that was really really interesting
1: (laughs) yeah the the only thing that i find though is like if you consume any meat before bed that contains bcaa's
0: yeah no but it's it's because bcaa's you know they're in that singular amino acid form Mm. they don't have to be it's not like consuming a steak you don't have to break it down so it's it's absorbed very very quickly and Mm. you're consuming them in very high amounts too
1: isn't turkey high in Tryptophan?
0: Yes, turkey is high in tryptophan. And that's why people, you know, always say after Thanksgiving dinner, like why they're so tired because they consumed, you know, so much turkey and so much tryptophan. But guys, another spoiler alert. Basically, all types of meat uh, actually have similar levels of tryptophan. So it's not the tryptophan and it's not the turkey that made you tired. It's probably like the 4,000 calorie Thanksgiving dinner that you just ate. So (laughs) that's the thing. But why couldn't it be
1: the tryptophan?
0: It, it it's not necessarily the tryptophan it's like tryptophan it doesn't it it doesn't work like that you don't just consume a bunch of tryptophan and then you just immediately get really really sleepy it's usually when you have a really big meal mm. but the main thing is there is that all types of meat they have similar levels of tryptophan so yeah ain't just turkey
1: yeah i do like turkey now
0: <laughs> i do like turkey too it doesn't seem like your teeth like turkey though <laughs> mm. If you guys don't understand that reference, you got to go back and listen to our most recent 2021 podcast.
1: (laughs) Okay. So wrapping this episode up, hope you enjoyed it. If you did like the episode, please remember to screenshot it and repost it onto your Instagram stories. Please tag myself, tag Tiara, tag the bodybuilding dietitians, and we'll see you next time.
0: Bye guys.